He extended his life another uh, 15 years, and it was one of the worst things that could have happened to Hezekiah and uh, to his people, as we, uh, as we shall see. Because uh, Hezekiah asked, God gave him a sign. Uh, they had some device for measuring time, some kind of a sundial based upon the steps of Ahaz. We don't quite understand the structure that he's referring to here. But the point is uh, quite clear. God turned back the clock. The uh, lengthening shadows of uh, Hezekiah's life uh, were uh, shortened. Uh, the sunset of his life was delayed. Anyway, you want to just want to explain the, uh, the sign of the sundial, it comes out uh, in the same way. Uh, God gave him a reprieve. He added some, some days to his life, 15, 15 years. Hezekiah felt that was an occasion for celebration, and so he wrote a poem. Now, he apparently thought this poem would be included in the Psalter. His verses, his word at the very end, is that he hoped that they would uh, sing this song for uh, throughout the uh, Israel's uh, history, but the psalm did not make its way into the Psalter. You will not find it there with, uh, uh, with Moses or David or Asaph's uh, poems, because though there are some insights into the nature of, of death and the character of death, uh, what you really see is uh, something of Hezekiah's uh, uh, own soul and the wrong perspective that he had on death. Now, the writing of Hezekiah, the poem which he wrote after his illness and recovery, uh, follows in verses 10 through 20. I said, in the prime of my life must I go through the gates of death and uh, be deprived, actually is uh, perhaps the best way to put it, deprived of the rest of my years. Hezekiah had so much to do. He had so many projects yet uh, to complete. Uh, he, needed, uh, he needed time. That's the problem with all of us. We have so many things going on, so many things that we want to do. Uh, Death uh, seems to be our great enemy because it will cut short those uh, accomplishments. Uh, This summer while I was on sabbatical, I read uh, Michener's book on uh, Santa Ana, the president of Mexico, and uh, Sam Houston. And uh, he said in the, in the introduction to his book that he felt he was nearing the end of his life and he was trying to get as much work done as he possibly could. And there was a prodigious amount of work that he was able to accomplish in his waning years because, as he put it, I have so many books that I want to write. And I'm sure that's true of all of us. We have so many things that we want to do, so many projects yet uh, unfinished, so many miles to go before we sleep. And we're reluctant to let go of uh, life. Hezekiah was 39 years uh, old at the time he wrote this poem. And as he puts it, in the middle of my life, right in the prime of my life, he says, I'm, I'm cut down. And it's very clear from the rest of the psalm as we read through it that, that his focus is on the here and the now and what can be accomplished in this life. Uh, his perspective is limited by the by his by his horizon, and the horizon is the horizon of biological life, natural life, and uh, his emphasis throughout the psalm is what can be accomplished in this life. And even though he he speaks of his relationship to God and his delight in walking with God through his life, you can can see that he's limited in his thinking by the by the here and the now. Notice verse eleven. I said, I will not again see the Lord. 
the Lord in the land of the living. No longer will I look on mankind or be with those who now, uh, who now dwell in, 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 this, uh, in this world. So he's, he's focusing on, on what will happen in, during his lifetime, both in terms of his relationship to God and his, and his relationship to people. You say, well, I would expect that in the Old Testament because people had a clouded view of, of the immortality of the soul and and the, the resurrection of the body was uh, was not fully developed until the New Testament. That may be true in terms of the resurrection of the body, but but these Old Testament saints had a very clear picture of, of life going on and eternal fellowship with uh, with God, as we'll, we'll see in a moment in one of the one of the Psalms. Remember, it was the Pharisees in Jesus' day who had only the Old Testament who were committed to the resurrection. It was the Sadducees who denied that uh, that uh, fact. And when Jesus went to Bethany to be with Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, it was the sisters who said, we know that he will rise at the last day. So they, they knew of a resurrection. And Hezekiah himself knew that there was more to life than, than just this life. Uh, his mentor, uh, Isaiah, in chapter 56, uh, wrote this. Uh, I'm sorry, 46. Now let's try 56. I'm sorry, 57. Here we go. Isaiah 57. The righteous perish and no one ponders it in his heart. Devout men are taken away and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in, in death. Uh, as Lord Byron put it in one of his poems, uh, perhaps uh, the early grave is meant to save. This is not all there is. There, there is a rest and a peace that, uh, that we enter through the gates of, of death. Now, that's an Old Testament concept, you see. That didn't come just from the lips of, of our Lord. These people knew that there was more to life than just what we see and what we know today. Now, um, let's read on in this, uh, uh, in Hezekiah's uh, hymn, verses, uh, verses 12. Verse 12 gives us some interesting figures of death. He uses two metaphors, one of a shepherd's tent and... Uh, another of a weaver's work. Like a shepherd's tent, my house has been pulled down and taken from me. Vivid picture of a, a Bedouin tent being uh, uh, taken away. Suddenly, they, a tent would be pitched and uh, animals grazed until the grass was depleted. And they might remain there for weeks or months, but then you would uh, pass by that site and it would be barren and, and there would be no marks of habitation. And Hezekiah says that's the way it is with life. We're here one day and we're gone the next. And uh, furthermore, he says life is like weaving, uh, weaving a tapestry. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life, but he has cut me off from, from the loom. You get a picture of Hezekiah himself weaving the pattern of his life, and he isn't quite through yet. He's still working on the pattern, but uh, God cuts the, uh, the work off of the, the loom and rolls it up and takes it away. And then he speaks of his own uh, anguish during this time. And he, and he says that the nights were particularly bad, as they always are. There's something about 
the night, the dark, that, that brings out the goblins and the fears. As he thought about his impending death at night, he gave way to anxiety and fear, and he waited for the morning, but uh, when the morning came, he said, I was like a morning dove. He continued to, to cry throughout uh, the day. My eyes grew weak as I looked at the heavens. I'm troubled, O Lord, come to my aid. And this way so many people look at, at death, such a, a fearsome, awful thing. And they fear their own death. The only way they can evade it is, is to not think about it. But there are always those intimations of our immortality. Our friends die and, and uh, uh, we're suddenly faced with the fact of our own, own death. It's frightening. And uh, Hezekiah was feeling this, this uh, fear. But uh, he says, what can I say? He's spoken to me, and he himself has done this. He's referring to the promise that he would live and the, uh, the actual extension of his life, which God sovereign, sovereignly accomplished. And he says, because of it, I will walk humbly all my years because of the anguish of my soul. Do you understand what he's saying? He still realizes he's terminal. He has 15 more years to live, but at, at the end of those 15 years, he will die. And he faces again into his mortality. And uh, so must we. See, We're all terminal. We're all terminal. Uh, you and I, at the end of this year, will either be alive or we'll be dead. Those are the options that, that we face. And I, I find myself going to more funerals these days than ever before, far more funerals than, than weddings. I've lost some very dear friends over this past year, and I dare say that some of us will be with the Lord at the end of this, of this year. I, I think that's unavoidable. And uh, we, we think about that, and, and, it, and it frightens us, some of us. It makes us feel very uneasy. We don't know how to handle that. Uh, as, the, as the philosopher puts it in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's more reality at a funeral than there is at a, at a, at a party or a picnic because we have to face things as, as we really are, as they really are. We, we can't evade the fact of, of our death any, any longer. It humbles us, and it does fill us with can fill us with anguish of soul. Um, down in verse 18, he, uh, he says, The grave cannot praise you. Death cannot sing your praise. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he underscores the fact that he's alive. They praise you as I am doing today. You understand what he's saying? The bottom line is staying alive. That's the emphasis in this in this psalm. The most significant thing that you can do is to uh, is to stay alive. And for many people, that that's the bottom line. That's their philosophy of life. They'll do anything to stay alive. That's why we spend all this time and money and energy trying to keep ourselves uh, alive, or at least to look more alive, uh, more alive uh, than we did before. But uh, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You see. Death uh, stalks us relentlessly. And uh, one, one of these days, uh, we will be taken. Uh, we try to evade it. We try to get away from it. But it's, it's just there. See. Now, the problem with Hezekiah at this point is that that's the limit of his horizon. He's just thinking of saving his life, preserving his life today. And God had saved his life for a period of time. And though there was a temporary uh, reprieve, he knew that uh, he would soon uh, face death again. Now, um, a couple of things happened as a result of this 
15-year extension of life, both of them uh, bad. The first is described for us in chapter 39. That's the reason chapter 39 is in the uh, prophecy. Uh, we're told that uh, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he'd heard of his illness, sent him a get-well card and, and a gift of some sort. And Hezekiah was uh, apparently overwhelmed by the fact that this uh, prominent uh, uh, ruler was uh, even knew that he existed. And when the envoys, envoys came to bring the gift, he showed them his treasury. Something very unsettling about this, something un- very unsavory about the king of Judah scuttling around, showing off all of his treasures, uh, his paltry wealth compared to the wealth of Babylon, while these uh, Babylonian envoys uh, looked on politely and uh, perhaps whimsically as, as, he show, as he was showing off. Uh, Chronicles makes it very clear and parallel to this passage that it was his pride that made him do this. And he showed him everything, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his entire armory, and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not, uh, did not show them. And after they left, Isaiah showed up on his doorstep, and he said, You have done the most foolish thing you could have done. Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Some of your descendants, he says, will be made uh, made eunuchs in the in the uh, court of uh, Babylon. This was the one of the reasons for the Babylonian captivity. These envoys went back and they put a note in their tickler file that if they ever moved west, uh, here was a country worth taking because they had some wealth. As it turned out, Hezekiah had to give most of his wealth away uh, when when Snacherib, the Assyrian king, marched uh, to the west. But the Babylonians, uh, they remembered that there was considerable wealth in this little principality. Uh, And it it was Hezekiah's doing that brought on, at least in part, the Babylonian captivity. Very foolish, foolish thing. The second thing that happened is that he became the father of King Manasseh. Now, we don't have time to go back and look at that, uh, at that text, but if you, on your own, would like to turn to the 21st chapter of 2 Kings, there is a description of the character of that man. We're told that he came to the throne when he was 12 years old. We know that he came to the throne in 681, if you add those numbers up. Uh, you will realize that he was born during the 15 years, the uh, ex- uh, extension of life that Hezekiah was, was, was given. And he turned out to be the most wicked, evil man that ever reigned over Judah. Uh, he was a disgrace, and he virtually destroyed the nation. As a matter of fact, the commentary of the prophet in Second Kings is that it's largely because of the sins of Manasseh that the whole nation was, was brought down. See. So two things happened as a result of Hezekiah's uh, clinging to his life. He uh, gave away the secrets of Judah and brought the Babylon, got the Babylonians' attention. And secondly, he sired Manasseh, who uh, virtually destroyed the, uh, the nation. See. He lived too long. He should have died back in 701 when, uh, when God called for him. Now, uh, as I thought about this, uh, this text this past week, there were two other passages that, that came to mind, both of which 
give us a little different perspective on life. I think you can see by now what the problem was. Hezekiah's, Hezekiah was thinking about the here and now and what he could get out of it. Incidentally, one, one passage that I did not mention was Hezekiah's uh, response to what Isaiah told him about the, uh, about the impending uh, approach of Babylon in, in, in verse 8 of chapter 39. The word of the Lord, this is what Hezekiah said, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good, for he thought, and, and if this were a cartoon, there would be a, a, you know, a bubble over his head with a dotted line around it. This is what he was thinking. This isn't what he, he said. No one would be this crass to say anything like this, but this was what was going through his mind, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good, for, for he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. See, that, that was his focus, my lifetime. And that's why he was clinging on to life and reluctant to let it go. As long as everything works out okay for me, say, during this lifetime, then I'll be okay. And I want to show you a little different perspective. Turn back to uh, uh, one of the Psalms, Psalm 73. <laughs> This is a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was uh, one of uh, David's temple singers. Uh, he was himself either, uh, the psalm was, uh, was written actually by Asaph himself or by one of this, uh, the members of his guild, his singing guild. And he was faced with a, uh, the, the kind of uh, problem that, that you and I struggle with from time to time has to do with the injustice of the world. You know, we have this uh, uh, this idea that the world ought to be fair. That somehow, good people ought to be rewarded with good things, and evil people ought to be awarded. Uh, there ought to be some retribution built into the world. But unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. Sometimes uh, the most wicked people get away with it through their whole lives, and that's uh, that's his observation. He felt compromised by it. He had been a good man, followed God, tried to. And uh, life had, had been very hard, very difficult for him. As he looked around him and he saw uh, other people who had no heart for God, um, they were, as he puts it, fat and sleek, and they die in their beds peacefully, and everything seems to go their way. And he was about ready to give up his faith. He, he says in verse 13, In vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocent. All day long I have been plagued. I've been punished every morning. I get it coming and going, he said. And these fellows, they, they trip through life without giving God the time of day, and everything works out for them. Life isn't fair. Well, no, it isn't, if, if you're thinking about this life. But all in all, we do live in a very fair world. And he did not know that until, as he tells us in verse 17, he entered the sanctuary of God and he understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. In other words, they're on a slippery slope to death. And uh, he says, how suddenly they are swept away by terrors as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. They're living in a dream world, he says. They're living in fantasy land. And uh, when they awake, there's the Lord. There is retribution at the end of this, uh, of this life. And seeing their final destiny cleared everything up for him. In contrast, in verse 23, in contrast to those who have no heart for God, he says, I'm always with you. 
You are holding me by my right hand. You are guiding me with your, with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. You see, he lifts his eyes beyond the horizon of this world. He recognizes that he has fellowship with God in this world. God has been holding his hand in the past. He's guiding him in the present. And afterward, he's going to take him into glory. This idea of being taken is an idea you'll find embedded in the Old Testament as the idea of, of being taken home to be with God. That's what was said of Enoch. He was, he was taken, see? In Psalm 17, the psalmist says, you sin from above and you take me. See? That's what it means to go home to be with the Lord. We, we like to, to emphasize the accidental causes of, of death, but what we need to realize is that that our death is a date on the calendar. We don't know the date, but it's a specific time. God knows exactly when it's time for us to go home, and when that time comes, he takes us. And death doesn't divide us from God. It just ensures eternal fellowship with him. Afterward, he says, you'll take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, I desire Nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. In other words, old age is, uh, is approaching. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See? He's his eternal uh, portion. This life, as the Harasa put it in, in C.S. Lewis's uh, Out of the Silent Planet, this life is the first and the feeble. The next is uh, the second and better. And you see the contrast between this, this man who could face his death with assurance and confidence and know that for him it was gain, and Hezekiah who was trying to, he was desperately, for dear life, hanging on to his, his life. He was unwilling to, to let go, see? because he thought, at least at that moment, he felt that this is all there is. There isn't anything more. So you have to go for all the gusto now. See? If you don't get it here, you'll never get it. And... Uh, that, of course, leaves us totally unsatisfied because we don't get the gusto that we go after. We're frustrated. And uh, we can get very confused about this life and very threatened by it and very unsatisfied and unhappy with it unless we see this isn't all there is. Our Lord is taking us through this life by the hand, guiding us. He does not ever leave us or forsake us. He loves us desperately. And, and when we come to the moment of death... We simply get more of God than we ever had before, see? Another perspective, entirely. Now, uh, let me give you another perspective, same perspective, another, uh, another person. Turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. The Apostle Paul, in this case. Uh, Paul was in prison when he wrote this uh, this book. He did not know the outcome. He was awaiting uh, his uh, hearing and trial uh, before Nero. The outcome was un- uncertain. Didn't know if he'd live or die. He was on the horns of a dilemma. He didn't know whether he wanted to live or die. If I had to choose... He said, I, I, I know which one I would uh, choose, but uh, he says, there's a bit of uncertainty here. 
I eagerly expect and hope, I'm reading verse 20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, that is, at, at my trial, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. All right, now there's that other perspective. Living is Christ, dying is, is gain. I was talking to a woman this morning. Uh, visiting with us, and she just lost her husband two years ago. And, and as she referred to his death, she said, my loss, his gain. Okay. Well, that's what Paul is saying. If I have to face death, it means gaining more of, of God than, than I ever thought possible. If I am to go on living in the body, this will, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and to be with Christ which is better by far uh, for me, much better for me. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Augustine said, uh, was the one who first said that we're all immortal till our work is done. Uh, he's right. We are immortal. No one can touch you. No one can touch you, you see, till your work is done. Jesus uh, was told by his apostles that uh, Herod was trying to kill him. Jesus said, go tell that fox that... Uh, uh, I cast out demons and I heal today and tomorrow and the third day I reach my goal. In other words, he cannot touch me until my work is uh, is done. And God can't touch you or, or Satan can't touch you. You can't touch yourself. Nothing can happen to you until God is through with the work that he's doing in you and through you. You're immortal till your work is done. When your work is done, he takes you home. Maybe at 39 is in Hezekiah's case. It might be at 12. It might be at at 92, in the case of my father, that's up to him. That's his choice. He knows when our work is done. And then he takes us home. You know, Paul is impaled on the, on the horns of this dilemma. I want to go home. He said, I want to see the Lord. I, this is what I've been looking for all my life. But uh, it's been revealed to me that I'm going to stay behind. And so I'll have to wait for the satisfaction of my, of my devotion. Uh, Henry Nowen who is a, a writer that I much enjoy, said uh, to live with a burning... Paul's uh, condition was to live with a burning desire to be with Christ and to be asked to keep proclaiming his love while missing its fulfillment. He had to keep proclaiming the love of Christ and, and yet foregoing, delaying the fulfillment of his own desire uh, to see the Lord. So he was going to stay busy while he was alive. He wasn't going to fret about it, but he he really was looking forward to seeing his Lord, you see. He wasn't going to cling tenaciously to this life. When the time came, he realized that he it would mean for him just gaining more of God than he, than he ever thought possible. Now, uh, as I read through these verses, a principle emerges, and it's this. Staying alive is not the highest good. Uh, we think it is. And I think that's what behind, what's behind all the extraordinary medical efforts to try to sustain uh, human life beyond the point where there's really any viable uh, uh, existence. Uh, people just don't want to die. Uh, that's, that's a frightening prospect. And they don't understand. Uh, they just do, do not see it as, uh, as gain. And uh, therefore, uh, getting well is the best thing possible. But that's not always true. Getting well is not always 
the best thing. See? The thing we must do is put our life in God's hands and know that we're secure and safe and our life will go on under His sovereign control. No one can take our life from us any more than they could take the Lord's life away from Him until the time. But when the time comes, we can relinquish our life and do so willingly and without reluctance because we know there are better things on ahead. Now, death always causes sorrow. We sorrow, but we don't sorrow as those that have no hope. You see. Those that are left behind feel the sorrow. Those that go on have the best of everything. They've gained everything they've ever wanted. Now, it's that perspective on life and death that we have to maintain. Now, the question is, how do we do it? How do we get there? Because so many of us uh, still see death as, as the, the final and ultimate uh, uh, enemy. How do we do it? Well, the first thing that occurs to me is that we have to learn to die every day. Dying is not something that we do at the end of our life. Dying is something that, uh, that we do uh, daily. As Jesus put it, we have to, we're going to follow him. We have to be willing to take up our cross daily and, and follow him. Uh, now, in, in uh, his little book, Beyond the Mirror, puts it this way. This is a long journey of preparation, of preparing oneself to die. It's a series of little deaths in which we're asked to release many forms of clinging and to move increasingly from needing others to living for them. The many passages we have to make as we grow from childhood to adolescence, from adolescence to, to adulthood, and from adulthood to old age offer ever new opportunities to choose for ourselves or to choose for others. During these passages, questions such as, do I desire power or service? Do I want to, to be visible or remain hidden? Do I strive for a successful career or do I keep following my vocation? Now, he uses uh, vocation with a capital V in the sense of call, a calling to be God's uh, men and women. Uh, do I strive for a successful career or do I keep following my vocation, my call? These questions keep coming up and confront us with hard choices. In this sense, we can speak about life as one long process of dying to self so that we'll be able to live on in the joy of God. Uh, you see, the, 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 there is that old and profound paradox, probably the profoundest paradox of all that, that Jesus repeated over and over again, that we only save our lives by losing. Uh, conversely, if we try to save our lives... We will lose them. See? Uh, excuse me, I said that backwards, didn't I? If we try to save our lives, we will lose it. If we want to lose our lives, we, 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 we try to save them. In other words, people that are always thinking about themselves, uh, their own bodies, what their bodies look like, and they, they lavish enormous amounts of money on, on themselves, you know, looking the right way. Uh, eating the right kind of foods and whatnot. Well, you know, these things are good to try to take care of ourselves and uh, to watch our diets and, and uh, to get adequate exercise. But there are some people that are just obsessed with themselves and the way they look and, and the way they feel. And uh, people who are obsessed with their careers and, and uh, their uh, stock portfolios and, and where they're going in life and... Uh, and uh, to the top of, of their profession. And, and they always want to be noticed, and they always want to be seen. See? 
I always want to be up front and, and to be visible and to be important and uh, to be known and to be recognized and to be acknowledged and thanked. And, and they're, they're always thinking about themselves. And, and those, those are always the people that end up feeling so empty and, and so unsatisfied and they never find the sense of worth that they're looking for. They're always struggling with their personal identity and, and who they are. And they often end up being the most, the most wizened, withdrawn, miserable people on the face of, of the earth. I, I saw an epitaph once in a, in a book. Here lie the bones of Nancy Jones. For her life held no terrors. She lived an old maid, she died an old maid, no hits, no runs, no errors. <laughs> and uh, you have to understand that old maidism is a perspective on life. It has nothing to do with age or station or marital status. The nicest old maid I ever met was a 25-year-old male graduate student you know, who was just thinking about himself all the time. But conversely, those that give themselves away are people that find themselves, people that that are concerned about others and want to minister to others and who have a heart to, to serve for Christ's sake. and They're willing to give their time and their energy and their money and their homes and their vehicles and whatever, you know, in, in service for Christ. Those are the people that, that find themselves. As Paul puts it, uh, we carry about in our bodies the dying of Jesus. That is, we have the same attitude that Jesus had. He was dying all of his life. He crowned his dying with the death of his body at the end of his life. But throughout his whole life, he was dying. He was giving himself and loving people and serving and caring for them. And Paul says, that's the attitude of our heart. That's what we seek. We carry about in our body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Christ may be manifest in you. We're always being given over to death, he said. That's the passive side of it. You know, those are the unkind cuts that we get and the hard shots and the people that misunderstand us and accuse us and abuse us. And there are always those opportunities to lay aside our rights and to seek the betterment of, of others. But Paul says, out of it comes life. See, you don't make any gains unless you give up. There's no life without death. And uh, I really believe that it's those little acts of dying, moment by moment, through the through each day, that prepare us for the for the big event. Say. Because we learn that life comes out of death through the little dyings, so that when the big dying comes, it's no big thing. We know that uh, we enter into into eternal life, uh, fully satisfying life. Now, that's the first thing I think we need to do. And, you know, we, we not only want to learn to die well, we want to learn how to die willingly. And the first thing, I think, is to be willing to die willingly throughout the day. The second thing I think we've got to do is to center on Christ. What makes seeing his face sweet is getting to know him now. That, that, that's what the psalmist uh, uh, learns, puts it in Psalm 17. When I awake, he said. I'll be satisfied with your presence. If you don't know that God is good, it's hard for you to think of God being good to me when the time comes. But if you've learned in this life the preciousness of Christ, and you've put your roots down into him, and and you've learned devotion, worship, and and love for him, and you've, you've seen that he's good, and he cares, he wants the very best for you, and he's with you through all the uh, all the the difficulties of life. Then, uh, 
you just long to, to see him. You, you want to be with him. Yet Paul puts it at the end of his life. I've fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. And now he says the Lord's going to give me a crown of life, which the Lord will give to all those that love his appearing. See, that's the thing. Do we really love his appearing? When he comes or we appear before him. It's that centering on Christ that makes us long to see him. If we don't know him now, see, that's not a very, it's not a, death is not a very attractive uh, option. As Paul puts it in Philippians, remember? He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Those two things go together. I often say at the end of funerals that uh, you can't say one without the other. Uh, if, if for me to live is money, then to die is to leave it behind. If for me to live is power, then to die is uh, to be impotent. If for me to live is my family, then, then to die is uh, to be separated from them. Uh, if for me to live is my business, then to die is to leave it to somebody else who will profit from all of my, my hard work. But if for me to live is Christ, then to die is gain. Let's pray.